Welcome to Chats with Susan Burrell. I help strong, capable women who have pockets of self-doubt access their inner wisdom and clarify their own truth. This is where we have rich conversations about empowerment, radiating your brilliance out into the world and loving yourself more than you ever have before. And today I have a treat for you, a repurposed show from my broadcast radio show called Living Your Inspired Life. Enjoy. More abundant, more love, more joy, everything. It's inspired young people. Inspiration comes from within you. When you clear out the garbage that's in your mind, you then create space for something better, more beautiful to come in. Let's have life and have it more abundantly. I say yes. It's like taking a workshop. I get to be in my pajamas. We have a very active imagination, which is why it's important to learn how to harness it and then point it in the direction you want to go. I listen to your show every day. It's time now for Living Your Inspired Life with Susan Burrell. Susan is no-nonsense, inspirational, motivational, and fun. This is positive talk radio. Practical wisdom for everyday life. It's a gift you give yourself. Now, here's Susan. And welcome to Living Your Inspired Life. I'm Susan Burrell, and you're listening to News Talk 1590 KVTA. And if you miss anything during today's recording, I want you to go to livingyourinspiredlife.org, tune in, tune up, and develop your power perspective in life. So today I am just joyously occupied, and I am celebrating a an author that is actually world-renowned, and he's got a new book coming out the end of this month, and it's called The Turning Point, Creating Resilience in a Time of Extremes. I want to welcome Greg Braden. Greg, thanks for joining me. Oh, Susan, I'm thrilled to be on your program today. Happy 2014 to you and to all of our, our listeners, and, uh, and thank you for the invitation to, to have this conversation. I am excited. Sense. I, I've just got this feeling our time's going to go by so quickly today, and there's so much that I want to share. <laughs> well, funny you should say that, because isn't that part of what your book is about, is this whole... Uh, okay, so here's my perception of this. Things have sped up, and, and I'm working with people, uh, clients, and um, friends, and uh, all anybody can talk about is how fast time seems to be moving, and there's multiple challenges that keep arising. So your book, Tur- The Turning Point, Creating Resilience in a Time of Extremes, sounds like it's perfect timing. Well, I, I think so. You know, what I, I'd like to do, now having heard you just say that, I, I'm going to begin with a quote Ooh, lovely. today from a man that I admire tremendously. He's a, uh, an evolutionary biologist. Uh, he's still, still with us today. His name is E.O. Wilson. And he, you know, when I see these quotes, Susan, I always wonder if, if when the people say them, if they know how profound what they're about to say really, <laughs> really is, and that people are going to repeat their, their statement for, you know, for years and, and decades later. But what E.O. Wilson said, he says, we are drowning in information oh my while goodness. starving for wisdom. And he could have stopped right there. That's a very cool quote, because I think we all sense that this is true. But he didn't. He goes on. And he says the world from now on will be run by people that he calls synthesizers. Mm. These are people able to put together the right information at just the right time, think critically about it, and make important choices wisely. That's the end of the quote. And I, I feel like that's where we are today. It's no longer uh, enough to know a lot about one thing. We've got to know a little about so many things and then bring them to bear upon a world that's changing faster than we were ever prepared to to accept the change and and in ways that we've never seen. You kind of have described the uh, old concept of the Renaissance man, yeah? I think in in, uh, many respects it is. So it it is a fact uh, that the world is changing in ways that I would just begin with some facts. It's changing in ways that we've never seen. The experts are telling us that we're living a time that they call extreme. We're living a time of extremes. So it doesn't necessarily have to be about bad things. A lot of times when people hear the word extreme, they think it's it's something bad. It doesn't have to be that. It doesn't even have to be good things, for that matter, but big things. And I think our our listeners probably all can can sense that we're living a time of big things, big changes. And it's a fact that our world is changing in ways that we've never seen, in ways that we're not used to, faster than we've been prepared to accept. And, And what that means for every one of us, Every one of us, no matter where we live or what we do for a living, it means that we're now being tasked with thinking and living differently to meet the challenge of the time of extremes differently than we ever have in our lives. And that's 
that's what this work, creating resilience in a time of extremes, is, is all about. I like the I like how you coupled resilience with a time of extremes, Greg, because it does seem, at least in my personal life and and witnessing some of my clients, that the um, extreme is very hard sometimes to bounce back from. Now, I guess I'm talking about even even a good extreme. If you've had huge amounts of success that's happened very quickly, it seems hard to find your balance in that. It, it is, and it is all about balance. And one of the things that we're finding, Susan, and I think this is so interesting, is that we can no longer separate the, the extremes of the world from the extremes of our lives and what's happening at our at our family uh, dining table and yeah. in our living room. Oh, boy, is that so, right. For, for example, uh, some of the, the big extremes, global extremes that we're talking about, climate change, we all know that that's happening. And, and for many people, it just feels so big. You know, what can you possibly do about it? Or, or the economic extreme, not just the United States economy, but our global economy is going through a shift unlike anything people living today have, have seen since the early part of the 20th century. So... People today don't have a good model, a good memory for what these extremes mean or, or, or the peak oil scenario that we're going through. So those are all big. And, you know, I've, I've been with live audiences, and when you say those things, people, you know, they nod, yeah, it's happening, and their eyes just kind of glaze over. You know, what does it have to do with me? Right. And, and it all boils down to the way we live our everyday lives. The climate extremes are having a direct effect on our, the industry that provides jobs in our homes and our communities. Uh, on the economy that we all know is, uh, is, is struggling right now. Um, energy, uh, the peak oil is now the oil, the cheap oil is gone. I, as a former geologist, I can tell you that. We still produce oil. It's much harder to get to. It's much more expensive. And that is reflected. There's an amazing uh, study that was done by the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO, showing the, the, the charted for 50 years the, the rise and the fall of the price of oil over the rise and fall of the price of food, and they're parallel. They're, oh, interesting. W- when the energy becomes more expensive, people don't always think about this, but it mm-hmm. takes energy to pump the water for the irrigation, to, to fuel the, uh, the farm implements that are seeding uh, the fields, that are harvesting the fields, that are taking the, the food to be prepared and sold uh, and shipped to our, you know, our nearest grocery store, wherever that is. All of those things. Uh, so these big things, the big in the world, suddenly they become very real in our everyday lives. The price of the bus tickets, our paycheck, our ability to save for retirement, put our kids through school, buy food for our kitchen table. And what all of this is leading to, and this is the point, uh, the, the first part of the book, the, the, the fact of the extremes, uh, that fact is creating what is called a new normal in oh. our lives and a new normal in our world. Uh, we're living a new normal. And for many people, that's news because it has never been widely acknowledged in the mainstream. On the one hand. On the other hand, if we're still trying to go about solving the problems in our lives and, and prepare for any kind of financial security, health care security, uh, jobs, careers, know when it's good to build a new house or to have a new baby or uh, you know, maybe go back to school for a second time, if we're still thinking within the context of the old rules, this is where people are struggling. However, when people are able to let the world of the past go and make room for the new world that's emerging, uh, and we'll talk about this, uh, there are people that are thriving today in ways even beyond what they were doing before our our world began to change. So that's the point of where we're going. The resilience uh, is found in our ability to accept that a new normal is emerging and adapt to what that means. So, Greg, let me just restate what you just said so I know that I'm clear. The The new normal is something we haven't yet experienced, and if we try to problem-solve where we currently are in our lives from the old way of thinking, if you will, it, it's, it's why we are feeling, why many of us are feeling like we're stuck. Right, because Absolutely. that old way of thinking isn't going to isn't going to bring us into whatever this new normal is. It's not, and this is this is the thing. The world changed. There's no one told us. There was no. <laughs> we woke up know, one day. CNN special or BBC World special. If you're listening to this in in Europe or, or wherever, and it's never been broadly acknowledged 
in the mainstream. So what I find is this. I, I've been uh, on every continent of the Earth, with the exception of Antarctica, in the last five years. Not every country, but every continent. And I've, I've had the opportunity to, to speak with people all over the world. So this just isn't just an American or just a Western phenomenon. There's a sense that people have that the world was kind of chugging along, you know, as it was. Everything was, you know, working pretty well until something happened. And for some people, that something is 9-11. For others, it's the economic collapse in 08. But, but they feel like something happened, and we've entered in something that has yet to find completion. So the sense is, and when I hear this in Western Europe, they say they're waiting for the other shoe to drop mm-hmm. or the other foot to fall. So that thinking leads us. This is subtle, and it's really powerful. I'm going to invite our listeners to really, really embrace this. That thinking says that, that the extremes that we're living now are anomalies, and all we have to do is hang on and wait for things to get back to normal, and then life resumes. That is a very different way of thinking than acknowledging the fact that we have left the world of the past, right. that what we're living now is the new normal uh, of expensive oil, uh, the fact that, that money doesn't work the same, the interest rates are going to be low, at least for the remainder of our lifetime, unemployment levels are going to be high uh, globally, is what the Congressional Budget Office is, is telling us, that, at least through 2023, is what they're saying, and the, the GDP of, of America gross domestic product, what we produce is going to be at at relatively low levels compared to what we're used to in our lifetime. So, you know, the best way I think I've found to to really anchor these ideas is through a story. Can I just share a quick story with you? Absolutely. Some of our listeners know my wife and I live in a a rural area in uh, northern New Mexico. And last fall, we were on a a drive, beautiful fall day, driving up through... uh, the mountain communities, northern New Mexico into southern Colorado, uh, we stopped at a convenience store for gas, and I asked the cashier, I, the woman that was behind the counter, I said, how, how's your economy? How are things here? And at first, she, she wouldn't even look up from the register to, to answer my question. She said, you really want to know? And I said, well, sure. You know, I wouldn't have asked if I didn't want to know. And, and then she did look up. And these are mining communities. Mm-hmm. So the, the mines uh, that mine these minerals in the mountains around the communities is where they, they make their living. She said, when the mines are open, she said, life is really good. She says, it's good pay, job security. Uh, people are having families. They're sending their kids to school, new construction, new homes, new cars. The community is, is thriving. She said, when the mines close, life is hell. And, and they're closed right now. And I said, well, that's got to be tough. I said, but how many people work in those mines? I mean, how, you know, how big of an employer are they? She said, it's the biggest employer in the county. When they're running full shift, it's, it's 600 people are working round the clock 24-7. And I said, well, how many people are in your town? She says, 1,800 people. Wow. So a third, a third of the town mm-hmm. relies upon these mines. And I said, well, what are you doing now? She says, we're waiting for things to get back to normal. This is why I'm Right. Story. She said, the guys are doing, and the women, they're doing anything they can. They're baling hay. They're working with gardens with the neighbors. They're chopping firewood for the winter, working on one another's cars, waiting for the mines to reopen. And I said, how long have they been closed? She said, those mines have been closed for nine years. Oh, goodness. So here's the point. For nine years, that community has more or less put their lives on hold, waiting for things to get back to normal, and they're having a terrible time. They're struggling. Uh, some of them are losing their homes. And it's not just about money, but it's, it's about the social cohesion that goes along with being able to thrive. And uh, the economy is, is a part of that. So what has happened is uh, there are mines in China now that are producing this mineral less expensively, and I don't know if these mines are ever going to open right. again. And I went back to, to our truck, and I got back in, and, and I said to my wife, I feel like I just witnessed a microcosm in this little town of what many people are experiencing all over the world. There's this subtle yet powerful difference between waiting for things to return, waiting for the economy to go back the way it was 10 years ago, or waiting for the climate to go back to the way it was, for the rains to come uh, like clockwork, or the snows for the ski areas to come like clockwork. There's a powerful difference between waiting and expecting for that to happen 
and embracing the fact that we've entered into an era where what we have now is probably what we're going to have at least for the, the rest of our lifetime. And we can talk about this from many perspectives as a geologist. I can tell you that the ice cores from Greenland and Antarctica tell us that the climate extremes that we're experiencing now, they're not going to go away right. in our lifetime. It's good to wean ourselves from fossil fuels. I'm surprised we, we didn't do it 50 years ago. Uh, and we need to use better light bulbs and you know, drive smaller cars. It's not going to change the climate change that is upon us right now. And that's a very different way of thinking uh, that invites us to adapt to the extremes so that we can thrive in them rather than acting surprised every time the climate does something off the charts like really warm summers or really cold winters or we're in the middle of a drought here in, in the southwest uh, because people are waiting for things to get back to normal. So, so this is the, the key and what I want to leave our listeners with. We've never given ourselves the opportunity to mourn the passing of a world and a way of life that we all grew up with, that we mastered to a degree, I think we, we did pretty well, and that we're all accustomed to seeing because we've never acknowledged in a broad mainstream way the fact that world is gone, many people are still clinging to this idea of what it looks like and the belief that if we could hold off long enough, it will return, and those are the people struggling. Right. While those who have been able to honor the past, it was a, a good world that got us where we are today, let it go, uh, and make room to embrace the new opportunities. And we can talk about some of those today. They're, they're actually doing very well. They're thriving with their families and their health. Uh, and in their ability to create a, a livelihood that supports them and, and their friends and neighbors. And that's what uh, this adaptation is all about. And resilience is a big part of that. So, Greg, can I, can, let me just back up uh, one step because, um, because I'm loving what you're saying about the new normal. And for an individual, because we, right, so far we've been talking kind of globally, right? But for an individual, I want to have a how. How do I create a new normal? And, and when you're saying uh, mourning the passing of the old way of life, so to speak, is, is really important because I personally have been feeling like these waves of grief and they're not mine, you know? And I'm like, where is that coming from? And when, and then there's a part of me going, and when are we going to be done? When are we going to be done with this mourning thing, the sadness of whatever it is that's changed? So how you know, do, I, how I do we do that individually, I guess? I, I don't know that you're ever done with it. It's, it's like when we, uh, mourning is uh, rather than an event. It's a process, and in my experience, it's a process that continues uh, and repeats it in different stages, different levels throughout our lives. Right. Uh, at when we mourn the loss of something that we love, whether it's a pet or a loved one uh, or a way of life, we, we do so in a way that is meaningful to us in the moment that we're mourning. A year later, our lives have changed, and we feel differently, and we sometimes are surprised to find ourselves re-mourning. People said to me, <laughs> I thought I already did that. <laughs> right. So what I often do in live audiences uh, and we can, we can do it here to a degree if we'd like, is I invite our participants, in this case our, our listeners, uh, please, if you're operating heavy machinery or driving, do not do this <laughs> right now. <laughs> but I, I invite our listeners, just take a piece of paper, take a post-it note, and write down some of the things that are gone from your life, that have disappeared, no longer in your life now, that, that were there even 10 years ago, things that you missed. Uh, and I've done this. Uh, you know, I missed, there was a big Borders bookstore that was a landmark. Oh, God, yes. In Santa Fe, New Mexico. I missed going by seeing that Borders bookstore there. I missed the mom-and-pop shops where I used to know the people that would fix everything from the computers to the holes in the tires of my lawnmower that used to mow the lawn for people that used to own homes. Right, right. You know, I, I miss those things. It's, it's not good or bad or right or wrong. It's, it's acknowledging that they're no longer there, and that we we develop an emotional and a psychological uh, attachment to those things, and it's okay to miss them, and it's okay to be sad. Greg, about I have a, so, I have an analogy just for about that about missing the things what used to be because uh, this summer I have a fan 
uh, oscillating fan and it broke and I'm like where's the person that fixes these things there used to be somebody I could go to to fix them and I said to my son we got to find somebody to fix this and he says mom just go buy a new one I was like whoa okay there you go see that's that's the thinking but we this is the generation we're living the generation that is is witnessing this massive shift in uh, in thinking and living uh, and the reality is that the shift largely is coming from what we call globalization. Uh, we no longer live in isolated countries or isolated economies or isolated technology or energy or defense or communications. And, and what that means is that the big things in our life have changed, but nobody told us money doesn't mean the same thing. Yeah. But if we're still thinking about it the same way, buy and hold, waiting for things to grow, hoping for a retirement, that, those are people getting hurt, jobs and careers don't mean the same thing. Religion, spirituality doesn't mean the same thing. Medicine, health, security, all of that has changed. So maybe it's, it's good to take a few moments and jot down what is it that's gone in your life right now that you used to appreciate, things that you miss. And at a point, uh, maybe tonight before you go to bed or first thing in the morning, whenever you do a practice, just allow yourself to feel the sadness uh, of no longer having those things in your world and acknowledge the fact that they're gone. And that's the beginning of the letting go. And the beauty of doing that is that once we begin, you don't have to complete it, just begin the process of letting it go. That opens the door for the new opportunity uh, in the new world while we're still mourning the old world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I know that we're... Um, we're probably going to come up to a break at the bottom of the hour, and, and I'd like to give an example of what that means. I'm, I'm going to do it after the break. But what I want to say to our, our listeners is that when you're feeling these things, you're not alone. Your global family, your brothers and sisters all over the world are feeling precisely the same thing. And I, I spend a lot of time with indigenous people. I was just with the um, uh, indigenous people in the, the Cairo, uh, in the Andes Mountains of southern Peru. There are only about 600 of them left. They are mourning the, the loss of the wilderness and the land uh, and the culture and the agriculture and the way of living that sustained them for so very long and that their young people are being drawn to the communications and the technology uh, of the modern world because they want to be a part of it. Monks and nuns, uh, I've spent a lot of time in Tibet, in the, the monasteries uh, and nunneries of Tibet, where men and women used to live their lives in isolation by choice so they could focus on their inner world now in what used to be the isolated monasteries everybody's got cell phones you can see them glowing under the robes <laughs> in the pockets oh, no wow of these monks and that's and they're texting back and forth and <laughs> the, the, the sadhus in india the the holy holy men and in some cases holy women have given up all their worldly possessions they're they are living on the banks of the ganges and they've all got cell phones and they're all texting back and forth and emailing. And I'm, I'm not saying it's right, wrong, good, or bad. It's just a very different world. And uh, as we acknowledge that and make room for the new opportunities that are coming, some of them we embrace, some we don't. But it, it, gives, us, it gives us the chance to participate and thrive and, and honor our, our deepest gifts and our greatest passions. And I think that's what's important for all of us. Greg Braden, you're 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 rocking my world. I I kid you not. We're talking with Greg Greg Braden. We're talking about his new book that's coming out the end of this month, The Turning Point: Creating Resilience in a Time of Extre- Extremes. You're listening to Living Your Inspired Life. We're going to take a short music break and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Living Your Inspired Life. And if you want to know who was singing that song, is singer-songwriter Margaret Owens. You can go to her website, margaretowens.com, and uh, get her CDs because she's just awesome. We're talking with Greg Braden, the author of a brand new book called The Turning Point, Creating Resilience in a Time of Extremes. And Greg, some of the stuff that you talk about in your book is is about science, and you've said that there's false assumptions uh, that science makes. And so I'm curious as to what that is, because so many people set their hat by what science yeah. says. Well, that, it's true. You know, I, I'll begin by saying I, I'm, uh, I am a scientist. I was trained as a scientist. I'm a geologist, uh, primarily earth scientist, with a, a lot of background in earth, uh, the life sciences, ocean sciences, uh, as well as physics and computer science. But I, I think science is good. 
Uh, however, I'm, I want to be really clear, science does not have all the answers. And honestly, uh, you know, Susan, in some respects, I think maybe our generation has asked too much of science, or we've expected yeah, too that's much a, of science. Yeah, that's a good all, point. Yeah, all science can do is give us knowledge. It can, it can give us information. Science is designed to tell us how the world works, how we work, and our relationship to the world. But science cannot tell us what to do once we have that understanding. So I'm, I'm making a distinction here between knowledge and wisdom. Mm-hmm. So the knowledge is the nuts and bolts, how things work. The wisdom is how we apply that knowledge in our lives. Science can't do that. And that, that's where our deepest spiritual traditions and our, our most ancient and cherished traditions, I've spent the bulk of my adult life studying, that's where those things come in. Because our ancestors, they didn't know about science, but they had some really, really very powerful, very accurate insights into who we are and, and how things work in the world, and science is now bearing out many of those insights. Right. There's almost like a full circle that's happened now. Well, it, it is. In and it's humanity. Showing us, it's showing us where the thinking of science in the past has been either inaccurate in some cases. some cases, it's been flat out wrong. So uh, I've written about this in, um, in other books. I have a book that was released in 2011. It was called Deep Truth. Uh-huh. And in that book, I identified a series of peer-reviewed scientific discoveries. So these aren't my opinions or my hypotheses or my theories. These are, are peer-reviewed scientific facts that change the way we've been led to think about ourselves. On the one hand, uh, and, and, you, and you would think people would be really happy to hear that. On the other hand, there has been a, a resistance and in many cases, uh, or, or definitely reluctant, in many cases a flat-out resistance to share these discoveries in the mainstream, mainstream classrooms, mainstream textbooks, mainstream documentaries, mainstream science. So the, the net effect is that we are asking ourselves and we're asking our young people to solve our time of extremes and, and the crises they have brought, whether it's climate or economy or energy or whatever it is, through the same thinking that led to the crisis. Oh, my goodness, yeah. That, and that, to me, so, fundamentally does not make sense. Well, it, it doesn't. So, so, for example, we, if you're listening to this broadcast, uh, I'm assuming that you've been born within the last 100 years. If, if, you, if you've been born before the last 100 years, we want to hear from you. That's right. Please write. <laughs> no, but if you have, it means that we've been steeped in a scientific story about us and our relationship to the world that's based in separation. Thank you. that we're separate from our bodies, separate from the earth, separate from our past, and that, that nature and our lives are actually based upon a model of competition, of violent competition and conflict. These are Darwinian ideas. The problem with that, and I'm going to just be very brief here uh, in the interest of time, but the problem is that the best science of our time has overturned all of that. And the scientific facts are now showing us we are deeply connected to our own body through thoughts, feelings, emotions, beliefs that change the, uh, change the, the rhythm of the heart and the chemistry of the brain, releasing chemi- chemistry in, into our bodies. It's all regulated through thoughts, feelings, emotion, and belief. Mm-hmm. We're deeply connected to the world around us. We are deeply connected to the wisdom of the past. We're reliving many of the cycles. Uh, of the past, both in terms of, uh, of success and some of the mistakes. War cycles, for example. And the best science of our time is telling us that nature, and this is the big news, nature is based upon a model of cooperation and mutual aid, not competition and conflict. And, and while we all know that competition happens, it's in response to very specific conditions. It's not the model. And I would imagine that we would be thrilled to, to share this with our young people in the classroom to tell them they live in a world based in cooperation, uh, and there's such a resistance to sharing these, these new ideas. You know, my so, son my son is just newly into college, and that's been his argument all through high school, a, a, a modality that did not work for him because he wanted collaboration and cooperation, and there was the whole thing was set up for competition. It still is, and... And if, if we want to see what a world looks like based in the false assumptions of science, we can look at the world we have today and the, the crises 
caused by the systems that are breaking down. The only things breaking down are the systems no longer sustainable, and they're no longer sustainable because they were based upon false assumptions. One example is survival of the strongest. Yeah, that, That's Darwin's own language. It was later interpreted as survival of the fittest. But in, in his book, published in 1859, uh, his own language, survival of the strongest, that is what the economic system of the world that is breaking down is based upon. That's what the corporate systems of the world that are breaking down are, are based upon. That's, that's what the thinking that's trying to solve the problems in the Middle East and right. prevent the war from happening over there that many people feel will happen, or the war uh, in the, uh, on the, the Asian Peninsula mm-hmm. uh, with Japan and China. All of that, Iran and Israel, all of this is based in this false assumption of survival of the strongest, the depletion of resources, and how we share them uh, with one another across borders. This is all based on this false assumption. And the good news, Susan, I'm encouraged. Okay, I want to hear the good news because I'm shaking my head over here, Greg. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm encouraged because these systems are breaking down. Very smart people in very high places. It may not always be obvious, but I get to see behind the scenes a lot. And they know that these ways of thinking are obsolete. They worked for a period of time. I'm not judging that we made a mistake. They worked for that time. This time is different. And so new models are emerging uh, on the international level. Uh, I'm seeing it uh, uh, with the UN. We've done some work in the, in the UN. Uh, I'm seeing it um, on the, the resource level. Uh, I'm seeing it at the scientific level. So, so the good news is that it's because things are breaking down, we know where the thinking of the past no longer works, and it has created an opening. It's opened the door for new ways of thinking, new ways of solving our problems. And and I'm fully acknowledging, I know we're covering a lot of ground. Yeah, we in are. This, <laughs> in this hour. So I want to give another example. I think it's the best way, uh, a story, the best way to, to really give an example of what this means. In our time of extremes, resilience uh, is key in adapting to the new normal rather than waiting for the old normal to return. Um, resilience covers a lot of the ground. There's, there's community resilience. There's personal resilience. And the old definition, usually when somebody thinks about resilience, uh, a typical definition is it's, it's about our ability to rebound or to bounce back or recover mm-hmm. from some kind of a, of a traumatic experience. So people in Hurricane Sandy, for example, uh, the communities were resilient to the damage and, and they have come back to life. Or individuals that lost a, a loved one in the battlefield of Afghanistan uh, have to find the resilience to resume their lives uh, in the presence of the loss of their loved one. Those, those are typical examples. And they're good, they're meaningful, they work in some respects. My question when I wrote this book is, is there another kind of resilience that allows us to think and live every day in a way that makes room for the extreme so that we can thrive in the presence of the extremes? And the answer is yes. It's, it's called Expanded Resilience. <laughs> uh, Stock, Stockholm Resilience Institute has done a lot of work with this. So, okay, that's all theory. Let me just bring this. I'm going to break it right down now to, uh, to a man and a choice that he made. And this is a beautiful example of, of how this resilience works in our life. You okay if I do that? Yeah, I just have to say, I, when you were saying, uh, it, re- before you used the phrase expanded resilience, when you were describing it of, of being so large that you can hold both parts of the tragedy and the resilience or the uh, the going on with the new normal, uh, I felt my whole my whole self was being stretched like silly putty. Before, And then you said expanded resilience. I was like, whoa, there it is. So, okay. Well, you know, the, the extremes, if you think about this, that's if, a lot to you, hold, Greg. If, if, you, if you came from another world and just plopped right down in the middle of this planet right now and didn't have anything to compare today to, you wouldn't know that what's happening today is an extreme. Oh, it's, true. It's an extreme because we are holding our reality, uh, measuring it against the yardstick of past experience, and it is very different. And, and that's where much of the struggle comes in. So, so this is a, a real-life story. I think it just illustrates this beautifully. Um, as I mentioned, we live in northern New Mexico, where 
not only uh, climate extremes have taken their toll, but the, uh, the economic extremes have taken their toll as well. Uh, and there's a, a man I know, he's a friend and, as well as a neighbor, his name is Ken, who is a builder of uh, beautiful, ecologically sound green homes uh, over 30 years. Wow. Beautiful, beautiful homes all through the Southwest. He had a crew of about 35 people that relied upon him for their livelihood. And he took on the biggest project of his life uh, with confidence because of, of his success at what he has done. And the problem was he began this project. He took it on in the year 2008. So 2008 was not only the year of the economic downturn, it was also the year of the housing downturn yep. as well. And he lost everything. Uh, he couldn't provide for his crew. He couldn't provide for his family. And Ken tells this story beautifully. He bolted up out of bed in the middle of, of the night. And he asked a question, and he said, what is it that people need? And this is a powerful question, because he didn't say, how can I recreate what I have done in the past again somewhere else? How can I take my business and make it work somewhere else? He didn't ask that question, because if he did, he'd still be stuck. He changed the question. He said, what is it that people need? Now, I'm going to pause right there. I'm going to go back to the conversation we had about the false assumptions of science. Mm -hmm. In the world of separation, if we truly lived in the world of separation, it would make sense to ask a question. And we've all asked this question in our lives. And the question, when we enter into a relationship or a job or a career or a healthcare decision, we say, what can I get? from this decision? What can I get from the world that exists? What's in this for me? And we've all done this consciously or subconsciously, and, and it made sense in the world of separation that we believed we were in. But the science is telling us we live in a world of connection, and that means that question has to change. And that's exactly what Ken did. Rather than asking, what can I get from the world that exists? He said, what can I give to my family, to my community? my neighbors? What can I contribute? What can I offer? What can I share? That is a subtle and powerful shift. And the next morning, he got up, taking his skills as a builder, but applying in a different way. He began to design, prototype, and build an innovative system of raised bed, self-watering, self-heating, covered greenhouse gardens that can be made as small as one foot square to fit on a patio of a New York high rise mm -hmm. or as large as four feet by eight feet put together in a series when we have land like we do here in New Mexico. My wife and I have two of them. And he began designing and building these things. Uh, he has never looked back. Susan. He's having so much fun helping people to care for themselves. He feels so good about what he's doing. I don't think he'll ever build another home. He's thriving more than he did when he was building the homes in the worst economic downturn in 80 years, and all he did was change the question. And that is an example of adapting to the new normal, and that is an expression of the resilience. Uh, in longer conversations, I can actually go through the, the five steps of resilience, but this is, is a beautiful example of precisely how this comes about. And I love that the question is, what can I give? What can I give? Because we talk about that on Living Your Inspired Life all the time, it, that, that it's not about what can you get, it's what can I give that opens up the door like this uh, man, the story is brilliant that he was able to come up with something that is out of the box too, that really people can use it. That's it brilliant. Was so obvious. It was so obvious to him uh -huh. in our environment. So we're here in, in high desert southwest with the worst drought in 40 years. Uh, people aren't able to, to grow the food that they have uh, in the past. Um, in the grocery stores, when you can find the food, it's very expensive because yeah. it's being brought in from other places. And a lot of times, it's uh, even though when they say it's organic, we know there's there are loopholes around that. Yep. The beauty of, of doing this is you grow it yourself. You know it's clean. You know it's safe. You know it's healthy. You know it's good. It works year-round. It's, it's, this is now the first week in February. And uh, or early February, and we are growing. And temperatures routinely 
uh, you know, close to zero, maybe the single digits at night. We're growing right now broccoli, uh, Swiss chard, kale, and lettuce in our... In oh, our my goodness. Wow. Yeah, but here's the thing, Ken, and this is so powerful, because when we lose a job and people feel devastated, as is happening to so many people now, they ask the question, it's a knee-jerk reaction. We've got to do something quick. How, how can I recreate what I've always done? Ken didn't do that. He said the world changed. And, and some people have a charge in the word give. So if you don't like to say, what can I give to the world around me? Uh, because you feel like you give and give and give and give, and you're always being asked to give, that's where the word, the language is important. What can I share? What can I contribute? What can I offer? And when we ask this question, do it without the encumbrance uh, of saying, what am I qualified to do? Oh, that's good. Or what is my certificate in? Or what have Mm -hmm. I always done? My sense, and I've, I've talked to so many people that have had this experience, is we all have something that has come to us so naturally that we have a passion for, we didn't need any training for, and we often create another job to create the income so that we can do that thing that brings us the joy and it comes naturally. Uh, Some people have learned to combine the two, and they've done it very successfully. But this is an opportunity. The world is changing. A new normal has arrived. I'm going to say every one of our listeners, every one of you have something. I know you've all heard it before. You're hearing it from me in a different way, maybe. You've got something that comes so naturally to you that you brought to this world, and the world needs from you whatever that is right now. So if your former world is crumbling or you feel it's on shaky ground, don't wait for it to go off the cliff. Take this opportunity. And I could, other stories. There, there's another family. A man was a nuclear physicist at Los Alamos National Lab. He didn't know his wife very well because he commuted two hours each day to the job, two hours back. He oh, my overtime. goodness. He didn't know his kids anymore. They were growing up, you know, faster than, than he and his wife knew that they would. He lost the funding for his job. They had a family meeting at the kitchen table. He said, you want me to find another place to be a nuclear physicist? And they made a decision to let that life go in favor of doing something that would bring the family closer together and allow them to know themselves and be healthier. They bought a herd of llamas from Peru uh, because the, the geography and the weather, the climate's very similar. They wake up every morning. They care for these beautiful animals as a family. They shear the wool a couple times a year as a family. And in the summer months, tourists come, and they have these little tiny backpacks, saddlebags, they put on the back of the llama, and the tourists lead with a, a little leash, their own llama, and a hike up into the beautiful mountains over northern New Mexico for a lunch. It's a lunch hike. They get to build a relationship with the animals. They get to know the land. Uh, and this family is working together. He's closer to his wife. He knows his kids better than, than he has in a very, very long time. And all he did was change that question as well. So these are examples. That maybe they sound silly in some respects, but I know everyone can relate through the conditions, because for all of us, our world is changing. Yeah, and those are ex- and those are, are examples of going from one extreme, if you will, to another. And yet, it when we're conscious about our choices and the choices we want to make, and we can listen to that inner wisdom within, it sounds like they're, uh, um, if you will, inspired to do something that is healthier and more productive for them than showing up and just getting the paycheck or or doing whatever the degree was that I got in college. Yeah, or a- Absolutely. These are all examples of resilience. So I mentioned this earlier, and I just want to mention this quickly now. In the book, obviously, we talk about all of this in, in much more and more detail. When we talk about resilience, resilience can apply to communities. That could be two people living under one roof. That could be a community. It can be a cul-de-sac of families. It can be an Internet community connected through the world. Uh, so different kinds of communities, and then it also applies on a personal level. And when we talk about personal resilience, there are, uh, of the many ways we can approach it, there are five keys in what we've just shared address most of these keys. So just briefly, the five keys of personal resilience. Uh, resilience, uh, the first key is, is self-knowledge. The better we know ourselves, the better equipped we are to deal with change in our lives. So that's the first key. The second is a sense of hope. Uh, being able to recognize that there 
there is an opportunity and there is a good world for us out there. And it's, that's our job is to recognize that it already exists. We have to make room for it and see it in our lives. The third, uh, healthy coping skills. That could be a whole program unto itself. Oh, you bet. Uh, because there are unhealthy coping skills that I think we're all very familiar with. Yeah. But healthy coping skills. The fourth key of resilience is strong interpersonal relationships. That can be a relationship with yourself, uh, with the earth, with the people closest in your lives. You don't have to be a, a, a big socialite. It just means establishing and acknowledging uh, those strong relationships. And the last one is, is finding personal meaning in your life when you wake up every, every morning. And in both of these instances that I, I just shared, uh, the men and the families, they found that personal meaning because they feel good about what they're giving to their friends, families, their neighbors, their community, um, uh, because they know it's healthy and good for them, and, and they're contributing to, to their lives in a positive way. So these are, are five principles, five keys of personal resilience. Uh, they're explored in more depth than, uh, obviously, in the book, and then applying those to what it means in, in a community. So I want to say that before we uh, we close out. I know our time is ticking away today. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, go- it's going by very quickly. I think we have about five more minutes, Greg. Yeah. Um, so, so in that five minutes, what else would you like to say about uh, your book, The Turning Point? Well, we haven't really talked about what a turning point is, well. although we just spent an hour talking about what a turning point is. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> the experts, it's good to leave it for the last. Yeah. <laughs> the experts are very good at telling us about the bad news in the world. They're really good at telling us. The media, uh, mainstream media, uh, you know, the academics, the politicians, the spiritual, religious leaders, many of them, they're really good about telling us uh, of something that we are all familiar with called tipping points. Right. Tipping points are frightening points of no return. Uh, for example, we hear people talking about the tipping point in climate, when the greenhouse gases are, you know, so high we can never recover tipping points in the economy when the debt is so great that the you know world economy collapses. We're all we've all heard of that. What they refrain from telling us is that before you ever reach one of those frightening tipping points of no return, you must pass through the turning point that nature provides to change the course so that we never have to reach those frightening tipping points. In in every crisis there's an opportunity uh, for these turning points uh, that move us away from the crisis. A turning point is defined in our own lives. It can be uh, a new information that changes the way we see ourselves and the way we think about ourselves in the world. And I've shared things in this program that could be turning points for people's lives if they'll embrace them. Or a turning point can be a direct experience that changes our perception, our viewpoint, uh, our worldview, the way we feel about ourselves in the world. Uh, and a perfect example of, uh, of an experience of a turning point. Uh, I remember, I remember I was working baling hay on a farm in northern Missouri in 1969 when the cameras showed the, on our little black and white TV the first man walking on the moon. Yeah, I remember. And it changed my world. I, I, I thought, you know, I, I felt different. My world felt different knowing that there was one of us walking in another world. And we're seeing it. That, for me, was a turning point um, of experience in my life. Uh, a turning point of knowledge, a uh, perfect example, would be the discovery that DNA uh, holds the, the code for the way the biology of our, our body is, is encoded. Um, and an even greater turning point, Dr. Bruce Lipton, my dear colleague, friend, and brother, tells us that our emotions directly influence the DNA that's the code of, of life in our body. That's and I'm so glad you said that, Greg, because I, I am fascinated by that theory, and, I, and that theory feels right to me. Well, I want to tell you, it's, it's beyond theory. It's, it's now a scientific fact uh, that's created a new genre of science that's called epigenetics. Uh-huh. Uh, and I, I talk about that in, uh, uh, in past books, as well as, as Dr. Lipton. I've had the honor of touring the world. Australia, all through Europe, we've toured together, uh, uh, and I've known him for over 20 years. He's a brilliant man. But these, these are examples of turning points of knowledge and turning points of experience. So what we've shared today, the fact that we are living a time of extremes, I'm acknowledging what mainstream media is reluctant to acknowledge. A new normal is at our doorstep. 
And so I'm acknowledging that. And it's an opportunity for us to, to mourn the passing and let go the world that no longer exists, that served us so very well, uh, and embrace what this new world means. And, and what I'd like to say in closing today, uh, I'll be very clear about this. I've never been more optimistic about, about life in general, uh, about our nation specifically, or about the world. I've never been more optimistic because we live in a time of extremes where the unsustainable ways of thinking and living are breaking down. That is creating the opening that we haven't seen for generations and generations in this world. If we can embrace those openings and share what we know, we already have the answers to the big problems, the big technological problems. We already have all the food to feed every mouth of every human on the planet. We have the technology to create clean energy, electricity of every home of every family that chooses to have it with no greenhouse gas emissions, no toxic byproducts. We already have all that. What's missing is our willingness to make room for those things in our lives that already exist in the world. So I'm, I'm optimistic, and I'm going to invite our listeners, don't buy into the fear and don't, don't buy into all those tipping points when the turning points are out there before those tipping points ever show up, but we have to look for them and we have to embrace them in our lives. Greg Braden, you, again, I said it at the beginning, I say it now, you rock my world. So <laughs> thank you uh, so well, much. Yeah, I'm, uh, it's good for me to hear today, which you don't know, is it's really good for me to hear that today. So thank you. I'm happy to have rocked your world and, and hopefully uh, in a good way, the world Always is, in uh, a good way. Okay. And I appreciate your optimism. Thank you for continuing to do the good work that you do in the world so that we can recognize turning points as opposed to tipping points. I've been talking to Greg Braden, his new book, The Turning Point, Creating Resilience in a Time of Extremes. I invite you to get it and just steep yourself in whatever your new normal is going to be. Thanks for joining us today, Greg. Thank you so much. Take good care. And all of our listeners, thank you for all you're doing to make this a better world. We love you all. Thank you. And I'm going to close with, and so it is, namaste. Well, that wraps up our chat for today. Thanks for joining me. And if you want to learn more, go to susanburrell.com. You can contact me through the website. There's blogs for you to read. There are videos to watch. And remember, I am an intuitive healer and spiritual guide at the crossroads of life. And I would be more than honored to help you on your journey to live an empowered life. And so it is. Namaste.